Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this week's podcast, we'll explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. This club is in the World Series for the second time ever. We speak with Houston Astros owner Jim Crane. Mayor called and said, hey, you need to get back and play to lift the town up. And so the guys um, came up with a Houston strong patch on their jersey um, just to kind of unite the city. And when we came back that Saturday, A.J. gave a speech to the fans, and they were packed in there and said, hey, we're playing for you guys. We want to win. So we got a little bit of um, wind behind our back from all the fans and pulling together. We'll have more of our interview with Houston Astros owner Jim Crane in a few minutes. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. Let's start with a surprise. I didn't see this coming. Uh, maybe everyone else did. George Girardi out as manager of the New York Yankees. They just got to the American League Championship Series. Of course, they lost to the Houston Astros. Evan, I'm going to let you handle it, but I will say to Michael Barr, how did you not see this coming? (laughs) 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 You you are indeed the one person that did not see this as a possibility. But, Evan, you you explain the why. No, and I can understand Michael's confusion. I mean, the Yankees overperformed significantly this year. This was a team that was not supposed to make the playoffs at all. They ended up catching fire with a rookie in, in Aaron Judge and made it to the postseason. Girardi was the, the runner-up for AL Manager of the Year. I mean, there are certain circles in baseball where he's doing a fantastic job. Now, there's a lot we don't know about contract negotiations. He obviously made a few high-profile mistakes in the playoffs. Um, but he's been there for 10 years, won us World Series. He's been to the playoffs six yeah, times you, you in just 10 said years. It, you just said it. You're the manager of the New York Yankees. He has been there 10 years and he's won one World Series. That does not cut it in the land of Steinbrenner. I'm sorry. if I'm a Tigers fan. If you get us to the AL Championship Series, we're buying you a new car and everything. I mean, maybe maybe I mean, if you had somebody like Justin Verlander on your team, you could get there. You know that but hurts. that's too, not too a Girardi soon, decision. Too soon, Michael. <laughs> I just hurt. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I'm going to cry over you. This will be a very – obviously, it's Yankees. It's a high-profile job. But this is a desirable position for anybody. I mean, you're stepping into a team – that is young and also very, very talented. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, that this was not expected. But the reality of all things Yankees is that you're expected, even when most don't expect you to, you are expected with the resources you have to reach the postseason. This is not just win the division anymore. There are two wild cards. There are many ways you can get to the postseason, and the Yankees should be there. They got there. And what happened there, you mentioned the mistake against the Indians. Maybe a younger team is not exactly uh, a mesh for Girardi's sort of patient, low-profile, analytical approach. Who knows what will come out. But to be surprised that this happened, uh, I just with one World Series in 10 years, you just got a sense that at the end of a contract, they didn't fire in the middle of a contract, he had four years and $16 million dollars. They have just decided, let's try something else. You know, there was a piece of audio of Girardi. He was talking about CC Sabathia, and it was just only a few days ago. And he was saying, it's like, there are no guarantees for me. And I thought, well, he's just being modest. I just didn't think there was no way in the world this was going to happen. Well, the only guarantee is what your contract says is guaranteed. And guess when his contract was guaranteed? Through this season. That's it. Let's talk about our next topic. Boy, did you see it on ESPN? Barstool Van Talk? Well, it was only on for one episode. They got rid of the show. What happened here? The beauty of this is Evan and I have these discussions in real time as these things get announced. So we're just kind of rehashing what we do sitting next to each other anyway. And I looked at Evan and I said, 
what in the world is ESPN doing associating itself with this sort of content? No, no knock against Barstool, but in the environment, being a Disney company, I just couldn't believe that John Skipper was willing to take on that sort of content, especially knowing things that had gone on between people in his company, his talent, and people at Barstool. That's the most surprising thing to me, just how hastily this all seemed to be done, both in the deciding to partner with them and then deciding to sever the partnership after one episode. I mean, the writing was on the wall, as Scott said. This was obviously not going to work out. I mean, the, the kind of content that Barstool trades on, what makes them so popular, is exactly the kind of thing that ESPN is trying to avoid doing with its show. It's polarizing. Some people find parts of it disgusting. They've said some nasty things about some ESPN employees, which I'm sure... Skipper wishes he knew about beforehand if he hadn't thought about it prior to to making this announcement. But in general, the past couple months, we've just seen this listing in the wind from, from ESPN. They're tacking against the people that think they're too liberal. Then they're tacking against the people that think they're ultra conservative. It just doesn't seem like they have a full, clear direction of what they're doing right we now. We know what it doesn't show. We know What it does show is just how desperate ESPN is to reach that young male demographic. And another topic, and this is from former NBA commissioner David Stern. And he is saying, you know what? Maybe it's time the league should remove the marijuana, as my dad would say, from the banned list. Which brings up an interesting point. Have we gotten to the point now? It's like, listen, is marijuana just like uh, having a drink at the bar? Well, what, what he's saying is if it's legal in your state, you should be allowed to do it in your state. So legal in Colorado, if you play for the Denver Nuggets and you're in Denver, if you play for another team and you're in Denver and you want to do it, you should be allowed to. It's no longer stigmatized the way it was. But I'll tell you this, having known David Stern for more than 20 years now and knowing how David Stern treats Adam Silver and, and is very reverential towards Adam Silver, you can bet this is probably something that has already been discussed and he knows how Adam feels. He wouldn't say this publicly unless he knew this is the, this is how Adam felt and was probably going to take action. What do you think happens first? Leagues drop their stance on marijuana or they drop their stance on sports betting? I think they're I, marijuana drop their stance. first. No, I think it's going to be sports betting. I think marijuana is going to happen in those states w within a year, two at the most. And I think we've from most people we've heard of sports betting. I mean, we know how they feel. We're looking at three to five years before that's actually something they have to do. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. Six years ago, a successful businessman from the Midwest purchased a baseball team for almost $700 million. That team is the Houston Astros, and they are fighting to capture their first World Series in franchise history. Jim Crane is the one who purchased the club back in 2011. Jim? Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Now, I have to, I'm going to tell our listeners ahead of time, I know the answer to this question. So we are speaking about 15, 16 hours after the end of Game 2, and I was curious, how long did it take for your blood pressure to settle back to normal <laughs> rhythms? Well, it was an up-and-down game, and it was very nerve-wracking, so it, it takes you a little while to unwind from all that, but, but at least two or three hours. It's hard to get out of that ballpark, so you got to stay there after the game for a while because the traffic's so bad, but... By midnight, we were calmed down a little bit. I, as one who has left or tried to leave Dodger Stadium, I can I can attest that it does take a while. But is this why you bought the team? Is this these are the moments why you said I want to do this? Well, we we told everybody when we bought the team we had to re 
rebuild the team. The team was in bad shape. Um, base, the big team was, you know, at the bottom of the uh, baseball, and then the franchise, uh, in in a whole, with the minor league system, was one of the worst. So. Um, we knew we had a lot of work to do, and we, we started um, with the minor league system and, and have worked it uh, back into the big club and made a lot of improvements. I am a Detroit Tigers fan. They always laugh at me, so I am rooting for you guys because, and you know why, you have my man Justin Verlander on there, and he has been a gem for you guys. Yeah, he's, he came in um, really the last month of the season, so he's been a big uh, lift for the team and a great leader for the rest of the ball club. Every time I see Justin Verlander now in a Houston uniform, I'm thinking it's like it's like that old girlfriend that you see, you know, down the road, and she's with a handsome guy now. I'm happy as heck for him because now he's got a chance to win a World Series title. Take us through that for what it's worth about a World Series title and what it would mean for the ball club. Well, the franchise has a, has only been to the World Series once before in, in 1995 and lost four in a row. So it's been a it's been a long road for the team. Um, you know, you don't get these many opportunities to win and you know, we have a ball club that's that's deep with talent and you know, we feel we can we can win the championship. They get knocked down, they get back up. Um, they don't quit, so we're, we're excited about that. Justin's a big piece of that. We are chatting with Houston Astros owner Jim Crane. And Jim, you talked about when you first bought the team, and the message was we have to improve from the minor leagues on up. Did everybody buy in? Because in my experience, a lot of times owners will say that, and sometimes those are the owners that don't really intend to spend big dollars on the big club. But it's an easy out to say we need to start with the minor leagues. Did people buy it, or were they skeptical? Well, certainly, you know, the fans want you know a team that's in contention all the time, and that's hard to do unless you have a great minor league system. We looked at a lot of different teams. You know, I had the opportunity to bid on some other teams like the Rangers and and the Cubs, and and uh, looked at some of the Padres and a little bit of the Cardinals. And you know, we we determined very quickly that the teams that sustain themselves over a long period of time have a great minor league system, and ours was in, in disarray. And so we started there, but but people, you know, um, you know, originally didn't buy into it. I mean, we we lost a bunch of games the first three years. The first year we got the team, we really couldn't make any adjustments because it was pretty well set. Um, but after that, you know, Jeff uh, Lunau dismantled, you know, the big ball club and really start uh, assembling really deep talent in the minor league system. And you've seen that with you know George Springer. You've seen it with the Carlos Correa, uh, Alex Bregman. All these guys were coming out of our uh, draft and our in our farm system. You, as a professional, built sort of transportation distribution management business, and I'm assuming data analytics is a big part of that business. Is that where the focus on analytics with the Astros came from? Because I'm always told it starts up top. If the owner doesn't believe in analytics, it's not going to work on the big league level. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, some of it's cutting edge, and some of the old school coaches and managers, you know, don't embrace it as much as you would like. But we knew we had to take a look at that as as, as best we could, and we really had nothing. I mean, our literally our minor league uh, scouts were filling in you know, paperwork and sending it in. They didn't even have computers. So we, we upgraded. Um, we brought in Jeff, and, and he had some experience there. But, you know, I played baseball in college, so I knew enough to be dangerous. And I knew, you know, if you have, you know, running any business, whether it's a logistics business or a baseball team, if you have very good good information, you can make much better decisions. And, you know, they did a good job of uh, rebuilding 
you know, kind of the analytics where we really had none, and now we're kind of cutting edge on it, and we continue to push forward in that area and put resources there um, to gain an advantage, and a lot of it's worked. You played college ball. Can you tell us the difference today between college baseball and major league baseball? I mean, I know obviously, yes, uh, from college to the major leagues, but the difference for what a player has to go through, can you take us through that? Well, there's really two paths for players. A lot of them come in um, out of high school, get drafted out of high school or from Puerto Rico or, or Mexico, will come in very young. You know, I'm not a big proponent of that. I'd rather see the kids go to school. Um, you know, the the colleges have gotten very, very sophisticated in baseball, too. So it's really a mini minor league system. So you can draft a kid out of high school, or then as he goes to a four-year school, you can only draft him um, after his third year. So he's got three years of college. So they get to play a lot of baseball in college and, and get trained there. Um, so there's, that's your two feeder spots. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a big difference from a kid coming in at 18 who's you know, not been around and not, not traveled as much and not had as much social exposure as a kid that's matured and coming into his third year in college. And actually, we prefer the kids that are a little older to put in the system because they're more predictable. And you said, Jim, uh, just enough, you know, just enough to be dangerous. I'm going to bet, though, that you recall to a T your college statistics as a pitcher. I can call them to a T. I bet you remember your wins, your losses, and your <laughs> ERA. I'll bet because they're darn good. Don't, don't be modest. Um, how, how well, how good were you? Well, I, I was, um, you know, played in Division Two, but I was a. Uh, um, you know, I, I was an All-American a couple of years and, and had some very good records and got to pitch in the College World Series and still hold a few school records. So, um, you know, it was it was a lot of fun to play. It, it taught me a lot about people. And, um, you know, to p- play in a competitive atmosphere in big games, uh, not as big as these guys are playing in, but, you know, where there's some pressure on and you've got to kind of get focused. So I think it was great exposure. And it gives me, a, you know, an idea of what these guys are going through. I know what it feels like after you pitch nine innings and the back of your leg hurts and you know your you know whole body's a little bit sore so i can relate to what they're doing i'm not was never at their level but um you know these guys are really good when you think about um how good they are um we have uh eight minor league teams so we have 200 players of those players that make it to the big leagues 10 percent only play one inning in the big leagues three percent play three years or more and that's the best college players, the best high school players, the best international players um, that make it into the big league. So it's really hard to get to the level that our team's at and the quality of players we have. Um, you know, there's people that are really good at different levels, but to get to the big leagues and play that well at that level is, um, you know, pretty spectacular. And we said at the top of the show you paid almost $700 million for the franchise, and a lot of folks tell me they don't get involved in pro sports for ROI, return on investment. They get involved because it's a passion. Maybe it's going to be in the family. It's something they love to do. However, these have been shown to be great investments. Did you think that you were making a great investment in a baseball team as an appreciating asset? Well, we, we thought that, you know, we didn't buy it with the intention of selling it. And, we you know, we knew the team when we bought it was losing some money. So we knew we had to turn it around. We didn't really think we were going to make a lot of money, but we were going to run a, uh, a team that at least broke even and, and, and cash flowed a little bit. Um, to do that, you have to win and you have to, 
you know, have a solid plan. But, you know, you don't really, uh, you know, if I would compare it to my other business, um, I, I told people if you want to um, make some money, you better do some other things alongside of it to, to make most of the money. But the ball team can cash flow from time to time, and this year we're having a great year, and, and we'll move on down the line. Can you give us some specifics as what a World Series run does for the cash flow in the bottom line at the end of the year in the books? Yeah, it's 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 a big lift. I mean, we don't we don't budget that, so everything we've got, you know, really runs our budget, you know, to break even or make a little bit of money during the season, and then as we get into the playoffs, that's all extra. So you know, the gate's big, um, the prices of the tickets go up, um, you know, by by league, you know, the title and you know, winning the division and the first round of the playoffs, you get a lot of that that uh, revenue from the gate and then the merchandising and the, and the concessions. So yeah, it could be a big windfall, you know, tens and twenties of millions of dollars. We're talking with the owner of the Houston Astros, Jim Crane, and we can talk about winning the World Series, about uh, the ball club and money, but there's something else very important. This team winning the World Series would mean a heck of a lot for a city that has gone through a lot, especially with the storm damage. Can you tell us what it would mean from that aspect of winning a World Series and what it would mean for Houston? Well, yeah, Houston had a tough uh, patch there for really a whole week. It was the town was really shut down. I couldn't even get back to town for a week. Uh, happened to be out of town that weekend, but the team was on the road, and we couldn't get the team even back in town. So we had to transfer three games uh, with Dallas down to Tampa. Um, we finally got back on a Friday, and uh, the Mets were kind enough to let us uh, have a day off and play a doubleheader on Saturday. Um, but it was a big lift to the city. The city was beat up. You know, everybody was scrambling. There was thousands of, you know, 50,000 homes were flooded. Um, a million cars were damaged. Uh, you know, you could look at it on TV and it looked bad, but until you were down there and saw it. And the players were upset because their families were having trouble. So to get the guys back, uh, Mayor called and said, hey, you need to get back and play to lift the town up. And so the guys um, came up with a Houston Strong patch on their jersey, um, just to kind of unite the city. And when we came back that Saturday, A.J. gave a speech to the fans, and they were packed in there and said, hey, we're playing for you guys. We want to win. So we got a little bit of um, wind behind our back from all the fans and pulling together. And we raised a bunch of money to help um, special projects around town. We even have flown some airplanes down into Puerto Rico. So, you know, it's nice to see the city pull together and everybody working together and and, you know, they've kind of gotten on the back of the team, uh, you know, as, as their mantra to kind of win something and put our name, um, you know, uh, back on the globe. We've been talking about the World Series and, and trying to get to this moment. It, television rights, we can go on about that all, all on the line. But locally, this has to be important for the TV rights also because uh, they bring in a lot of revenue uh, for the club as well. Yeah, each team kind of has a regional sports network. Ours is with um, AT&T now, um, but we didn't get off to a good start there, but we were with Comcast, but that didn't work, so uh, they filed bankruptcy, re regrouped. But a big part of your revenue comes from your regional sports network, and, um, you know, we're in a big market, so we get a, a, you know, a reasonable lot of money, not as much as New York or L.A. or Chicago or some of the other biggest. So your real two numbers really come from, you know, your regional sports network, and then, you know, your attendance and your concessions and, and that sort of thing um, and merchandise. So um, when, you, when, when those numbers are up, you know, you know certainly it rises um, 
and and it and increases the franchise values as as years go along. Jim, when you saw the L.A. Dodgers deal with Time Warner Cable, did you say, "Wait, how much?" <laughs> you had some troubles, like you said, with the RSN world in the early in the early going. But that was some eye-popping number, and they still don't even have full distribution. Do, do other owners look and say, whoa, 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 how much are they getting? Well, they're, you know, baseball's a little bit different than uh, the NFL. The NFL splits all the TV money evenly, and, you know, baseball has the national network like Fox last night. That's all split with, throughout all the teams, but your regional money you get to keep uh, locally. And the bigger markets have more uh, um, population, so they're going to have more subscribers. Uh, the L.A. deal is a little bit different because it hasn't been able to get distribution, but they were guaranteed the money. When we did our deal, um, you know, Comcast, you know, did not guarantee the money, so when they didn't get the distribution, they came back and filed bankruptcy, so then it went to AT&T, so we lost some of our equity in that deal, but um, been able to recover from it okay. But, yeah, the, the bigger markets have a lot more revenue there, and, you know, someone like a Tampa or a Milwaukee or somebody out, that is a big disadvantage. Now there's revenue sharing that tries to, you know, equalize that throughout the teams, but it's fairly complicated. But, um, you know, I'd I say you have the rich, the poor, and the medium-income families in baseball, and we just have to be a little smarter and a little faster than the rest of them to try to compete. In the big picture of media and as revenue driver, we know it's a big chunk of the national revenue. Where do you see it going in a world where ESPN is losing sub-fees, however, the Amazons and the Twitters and Facebooks of the world are starting to engage in pro sports and perhaps be real-world bidders on live, on live rights? Where, as an owner, do you see media going? Well, I, I think it's changing quickly. I mean, the, um, the, um, you know, the ESPNs and... You know, even even our subscribers, you know, they pay a fee. It's it's in their bill. You're seeing a lot of things head towards social media. You know, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat. All the millennials are, you know, looking at all this stuff. You know, you've got augmented reality, virtual reality. I think all these things will continue to increase, and that'll be another area where, you know, if the cabling goes down or the, you know, the satellite goes down. You know, you're gonna, it's going to be picked up on this other side because they're going to pick it up, and that's the way they want to get the content. Well, baseball made a great investment in BAMTech, sort of the digital media arm of Major League Baseball, sold to Disney. Where do you see baseball in terms of the content that it has to deliver scalable media on a global basis? Where does baseball stand when compared to the other sports? Well, you know, we're, you know, baseball's, you know, tried to expand globally into Mexico. We're, we're in Canada, you know, Puerto Rico, and you know, you, you see some interest in in Europe, um, and I think they'll continue to look at that, even playing some games over there next year, um, and down down into Mexico. Um, you're starting to see the interest expand. There's a little bit of interest in Asia, and you know, we'd certainly like to crack that market. But you'd like to have your your content global and and your, your fans global. Um, it's a game that wasn't played over there, like like uh, football or or we call it soccer, um, you know, that's really a global sport. Um, but it's expanding, and I think there's a lot more interest in it, and it's going to come from the digital content and that sort of thing. I apologize for not knowing this, but do you guys have the dugout-style seating for ticket holders? The reason why I bring it up is because Fenway Park now, they're thinking about bringing that dugout-style seating for the fans. Do you guys have something like that, and uh, would you guys be interested in something like that? If well, you guys we, don't? we've worked hard on the ballpark. Some of the some of the ball, ballpark uh, dugout style is is, is cool. The, the younger people like 
social areas. We've renovated our entire center field area where it's more of a social area where you stand and there's some tables and it's more of a, a gathering area. Um, and you see a lot more of that. A lot of people don't want to sit for three hours in one spot and, and get up and down and walk. They want to, you know, kind of uh, uh, move around and, and visit and talk to different people. So we've tried to create more areas like that. The newer ballparks um, like Atlanta have a lot more of those areas. So we're working hard to try to transform some of those areas in our ballpark. But, you know, Boston has done some of that and been successful with it. Houston is a good area because you have many fans from Mexico that can come in and see the ball club. Can you talk about that advantage and what it means that you can bring in uh, more fans from Mexico? Well, we, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's very close. We have close ties to Mexico and Houston. Um, and it's not that far. So, yeah, we get a lot of fans in from really Puerto Rico and uh, the Dominican and um, Mexico, and, and that's a big draw for us, and, and we kind of cater to those guys. Uh, we have Spanish radio, and um, Jeff Luno, even our GM, speaks fluently in Spanish, so we do a lot of uh, work in that area to make sure they're getting the content they need to, to get some interest in the team. Okay, Jim Crane, owner of the Houston Astros, thank you very much for taking the time, and good luck in the series. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot, guys. Takeaways from Jim Crane, owner of the Houston Astros, and the key word there is Houston because we can talk about the World Series, we can talk about trying to get past the Dodgers, but the bottom line is Houston has been to you nowhere and back, and bless their hearts, they are fighting hard after all the stuff they have done, and I like his answer about the city trying to get back. We saw that in 2001 with the Yankees and baseball coming back. It's certainly a distraction during hard times. For me, I I focus on the businessman, Jim Crane, and the analytics of his transportation distribution translating into everything he does in the sports. He talked about Jeff Lunau. Uh, My friend, Sig Mejdal, used to work at NASA, now works for Jeff. I mean, it's really an analytics-focused team, and you're starting to see more and more. And the Dodgers, too, invest heavily in analytics. So all the old-school guys, you know, on the clipboard, five-tool throws hard, runs fast, who don't believe in the numbers, this is really going to start to sway a lot of minds. This stuff is working. This all started way back in the old money ball. Uh, back with the uh, Oakland A's, and uh, they had a team back then, as you guys know, that uh, didn't have a lot of money, but boy, they had a lot of analytics, and it worked. Yeah, and you have to prove what you value. They valued getting guys on base. It was on-base percentage. The OBP, what's your what's his OBP? He may not hit 310, but his OBP is good. We like it. They sort of peeled back the curtain, and now it's about... What do you value? How do you get the data? What do you do with the data? But the two teams in the World Series, and I don't think it's happenstance, these two teams are heavily devoted to it. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Number of the week. Can 35. I say? Well, let me say it. Uh, let me say it. And then, right. uh, I want to set you up. This this one is for you. All right. All right. Well, you. I mean, you kind of said it, but I don't know if everybody heard it. Yeah. This is number thirty-five. You alluded to it yeah. in the interview with Jim Crane, but is it bittersweet seeing thirty-five putting up lots of zeros? You like what I did there? 
<laughs> you know what this is like? It's like I was saying with Jim Crane. It's like when you break up with a girlfriend, and now the girlfriend is with this handsome-looking dude, and all you can say is, well, I hope she's happy now. And that's what I can say well, now for Justin Verland. I'm going to look at our producer, Medina, and just laugh and say, hey, at least, you know, Barr's never been the good-looking dude who has the girl now. <laughs> He's always seen it from one side. But are you happy for Verland? I mean, are you happy for him? Or I'm happy because he has a chance to win it all. He has a chance to get that ring. And and I'm, I'm he didn't win it in in Detroit. He was almost there. He almost went into Detroit, but now he has the chance to do it, and I, I want to see him do it. And just if anything, I want to see Justin. So he'll, I he'll, hope he's happy. He'll never be in the Michael Barr sort of Jack Morris Pantheon Hall of Love. I hope he's happy. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> he looks happy. Where's my tissue? Okay, you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. Go, Justin. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we talk to the biggest and brightest in the world of the business of sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.